Okay, passage 14. This is the last of the maps. This is taken from an extremely long sutta. It starts out with someone who meets with the Buddha, develops conviction, decides he wants to go beyond suffering, becomes a monk. And then he develops his virtue, as I said, guards the doors of his senses, is possessed of mindfulness and alertness, and is content. And then it goes through describing these different aspects of his practice. The first is, is a long description of, this, of the bear's monk's virtues, including not just the precepts, but all, a lot of other things that he, in terms of right livelihood, that he doesn't get involved with. Based on that virtue, then he develops sense restraint, mindfulness and alertness, Contentedness. This is one topic we haven't touched on yet. You are content with physical surroundings as long as they are conducive to your practice. You're content with them. Say this is this is good enough to practice. It's okay. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be ostentation. It doesn't have to impress anybody. I need in terms of food, clothing, and shelter. I have what I need. The areas where the Buddha says not to be content, of course, is if you have unskillful qualities in your mind or if your level of skill has not reached the ultimate level, says don't rest content with that. Try to solidify what you've got and then see what you can do to develop it. Then he says you abandon the hindrances. What's interesting here is in the list of the hindrances, instead of having sensual desire, he has covetousness. In other words, greed. That's the first hindrances. Talks about abandoning these and gives analogies for it doesn't say how you do it, but we've talked about this before. One, it's the first requisite is you recognize this state of thought, this state of mind when it comes in. Okay, this is a hindrance. This is something I don't want to get involved with. That right there is 50% of the, you know, the, the battle right there. Instead of saying, oh, this sensual desire, this is something I really want to follow, this ill will of the person who really does deserve to suffer. In other words, instead of siding with that state of mind, you say, no, I recognize this as an obstacle, I've got to get past it. And then you use the various techniques for seeing the drawbacks of that particular thing. And also seeing, as I said, seeing the allure. You know, why do you like your lust? Why do you like your ill will? Why do you like your sleepiness? And then as you can get past the hindrances, you say, okay, that's when you get into the jhanas. Okay, here's the restaurant review. First jhana, secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities, you enter and remain in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure, born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. You permeate and pervade views and fill this very body with a rapture and pleasure, born of seclusion, just as if a dexterous bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water. So the ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, you permeate this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. There's nothing of your entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. That's the first jhana. Okay, we'll be looking at these analogies for the jhanas. In each of the analogies, you will have, if there's water, water is a symbol for pleasure. If there's movement, Movement is a symbol for rapture. In the first, first analogy, it's the only one where you have a conscious agent who is intentionally doing something. That stands for the directed thought and evaluation. 
know, say you take the breath as your object, you consciously try to get the breath to be comfortable and then you kind of knead it through your body, that sense of ease. In the same way that the, the bathman is trying to get the moisture to fill that big ball of, of bath powder. You'll notice here also that the bathman is actually is actually separate from the rapture. The bathman is one thing, the pleasure and the rapture are something else. And you have this sense when you're the first jhana, you're watching the breath and there are these things going on, but you're kind of here directing it and adjusting it. Whereas when you get into the second jhana, you actually become one with the breath. The awareness and the breath seem to become one. Because at this point you don't have to th think about adjusting. There is one description of the stages of jhana, where there's an intermediate stage between the first and the second, where they say you put aside the directed thought. In other words, you don't have to remind yourself to stay with the breath. But you are still saying, okay, now that I'm not reminding myself, how do I adjust this so I can stay balanced? Once you stay in that state of balance, then you go into the second jhana. And here it is. With the stilling of directed thoughts and evaluations, you enter and remain in the second jhana. Rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Okay, this time, instead of simply the fact that it feels good because you're not thinking unskillful thoughts, but the, the rapture and pleasure come from the fact your mind really is centered and focused. <clears throat> More intently. Unification of awareness. Okay, this is where your awareness and your object become one. Free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. You feel there's a confidence that comes here that, okay, you really are now with your object. Now the analogy here is you have a lake with spring water with sky supplying abundant showers time and again. And the reason there's a footnote there is that there are different versions of the text which sometimes say the showers are not coming time and again, which doesn't make any sense to me. So that the cool fountain of water welling up from within the lake would permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. So here now the water and, the, and this movement of energy coming through, they're all one. There's no, no conscious agents standing separate from the lake. It's just the lake itself is now, it has this sense of upwelling coolness. Even so, you permeate the body with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. There's nothing of your entire body. Okay, You have to have this full body awareness to do this. That is unpervaded with rapture and pleasure, born of concentration. Okay, after a while the sense of rapture becomes excessive. You want a, a greater sense of stillness. Okay, with the fading of rapture you remain equanimous, mindful, and alert. The word fading of rapture there can also mean dispassion for the rapture. It's interesting, the word for fading and dispassion are the same word. So you could translate that either way. You, man, man, equanimous, mindful, alert, you sense pleasure of the body. Okay, your mind is equanimous, but there's pleasure in the body. You enter remain in the third jhana, which the noble ones declare equanimous and mindfully has a pleasant abiding. You permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill this very body with a pleasure divested of rapture. Just as in a lotus pond, some of the lotuses born and growing in the water stay immersed in the water and flourish without standing up out of the water, so they are permeated and pervaded, suffused and filled with cool water from their roots to their tips. And nothing in those lotuses will be unpervaded with cool water. Okay, notice here in the analogy, the movement has stopped. Everything is very still. But they're still at the water, stands for the, the fact that pleasure is still there. At this point, the, the breath gets very, very, very uh, refined. But it's still that you still have a slight sense of in and out breath. 
And then finally with the fourth, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, you enter remain in the fourth jhana. Purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. You sit permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness. Just as if a man were sitting covered from head to foot with a white cloth, so that there would be no part of his body to which the white cloth did not extend, even so the monk sits permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness. It's nothing of his entire body unpervaded by pure, bright, bright, bright awareness. Okay, here the, the movement, there's no movement, there's no water, and there's no pleasure, no rapture, there's a state of equanimity. Your awareness fills the body. This is the point where your mindfulness becomes pure and your equanimity becomes pure. And there are other descriptions of the state that basically say your in and out breath stops. Apparently the oxygen exchange at the skin is enough to keep you going, because you're not using that much in terms of your, your brain. Everything is very, very still. So it's obvious from these analogies that, that jhana is, let me back up a bit, the word jhana is related to a verb jayati, which means to burn with a steady flame. Pali has lots of different words for burning, and the one that they would use for an oil lamp was jayati. Now, an oil lamp has a flame that is steady, so you can read by it. The analogy here is, okay, the mind is kind of, it still has, there's still some cleaning going on, but it's all very steady. And it's steady enough so you can read your mind by the light of this state of concentration. There's another term that's often used for to describe the state, which is jitta sagakata, which means basically the singleness of mind. Um, sometimes it's translated as one-pointedness of mind, but there's nothing in the canon that would confirm that translation. Um, let's take the word apart. Jitta means of the mind. Eka means one. The da at the end is is the noun, and then the the the, the word the part of this compound that is controversial is the word aga. In agagata. Um, aga has several meanings. It means the tip, like the tip of your finger would be the aga of your finger. The ridge line of the roof would be the aga of the roof. The summit of a mountain would be the aga of the mountain. Um, there's a great passage where they talk about how lax and luxurious monks in the future will be seeking out the aga of flavors with the aga of their tongue. <laughs> In other words, the utmost flavor with the tip of your tongue. Okay. That's one set of meetings for Aga. The other set of meaning has to do with meeting halls. Like this would be a meditation Aga. In a monastery we have a dining hall, it's called a Padaga, which means the meal Aga. So here it's a meeting place where people gather together. And I think that for the, given that so many of the analogies, that when the Buddha talks about mind concentration as a dwelling place for the mind, I think it's the second meaning of aga, which is the appropriate one. In other words, your mind is all gathered around one object. Um, sometimes you hear it said, okay, the mind has to be one-pointed to the point where it has no sense of the body, it can't think, and it can't even hear sounds. But the way they use agaka in um, sort of everyday Pali, there's a the couple passages where the Buddha is talking about when you're listening to a Dharma talk, you should listen with appropriate attention, i.e. ask questions about how does this apply to the questions of suffering. And also your mind should be egaga. It should be gathered around the talk. In other words, you're not thinking about other things. You should be giving your full attention to the talk. Now obviously you can hear the talk and you can think because you're applying appropriate attention. So the word egaka 
does not mean one-pointed to the point where you can't think or can't hear things. Um, but I said this is a controversial point, but it seems that this seems, given the way the word is used in Pali, um, this seems the most appropriate translation. The mind is gathered in around one object. But you do have this full body awareness. When the Buddha talks about your ears falling silent when you do meditation, he, he applies that to the formless states. He doesn't apply that to the states of the four jhanas. The formless. Mm -hmm. Infinite space, infinite. He says some people can hear sounds when they're in these states, other people can't. But, but he doesn't apply that to the four jhanas. So, any questions on the jhanas? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's mainly in English. Although there's a problem in the commentary, it talks about jhana, and the canon talk about jhana, and they're two very different things. The commentary's jhana is so one-pointed that you don't have any awareness of anything else. The canons is this. It's different. Yeah. That's one of the reasons for the controversy. The other is, I mean, it is possible to get your mind really, really one-pointed. Now the question is, that what the Buddha is talking about? And the, what the analogies is giving you, your full body awareness, you're spreading the pleasure and rapture to fill your whole body. Um, it doesn't sound like one-pointedness. You're trying to actually get the mind aware of the whole body. It's, it's, and it's explicit in the fourth jhana. Well, all, all the seven factors of awakening are present in the jhana. You've got the mindfulness. You're looking for what's skillful and what's unskillful. That's analysis of qualities. There's the effort to get the mind into the jhana, that's persistence, and then keep it there when it's there. And then you've got the rapture, calm, concentration, equanimity. Those are all obviously jhana, jhana factors. Well, there's the agent in, in the first jhana. Well, remind us, you've got to remind yourself, hey, stay here with the breath, 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 breath. There's got to be something in there that acts as an anchor so you don't drift off. Because one of the big problems when you're doing this is that the breath gets really comfortable and you say, wow, comfort, let's just go for the comfort. You drop the breath and you go into what a John Lee calls delusion concentration. It's very still, very quiet, but you come out and you're not quite sure exactly where you were. We've all been through there. This, yeah. okay. And that's because you drop the breath for the comfort. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha says, you know, third step of breath meditation, be aware of the entire body. There's an effort that's required to be aware of the entire body. I was talking about the analogies. The, the, the conscious agent in the first one stands for directed thought and evaluation. It's not that there's no agent, it's just there's no, in the analogies, in the third, second and third and fourth jhanas, there is no conscious agent working. So that that bathman stands for directed thought and evaluation. And he has to have some discernment. How do I get the water to mix properly with the, with the bath powder so it's, everything is nicely mixed properly? Because when you're in the beginning stage, you're actually working to get these things together. So it's going to require a certain amount of gaining a sense of, okay, am I focusing too heavily, focusing too light? Where is the breath best? Where, is, where does things need to be worked out? It's kind of just adjusting things. You see some descriptions of the first jhana where they say, well, this is an unfortunate wobbling of the mind, that we have to get over the wobbling. 
But actually the Buddha is talking about, hey, you've got these three things that are, it's, you know, it's like, there's an analogy they have in Thai of trying to get crabs to go into a basket. And you've got the body here, and you've got the mind here, and you've got the feelings over there, and you're trying to get them all together in one basket. You catch this crab, and the other crab crawls out. And so you've got to figure out how to work some way to get them in. It's all, everything's there. Yeah. And so now it's just a matter of, okay, let's keep things right here and not maintain everything. It's, you've got it in a good balance, now, now maintain the balance. Yeah, everybody does it. <laughs> Everybody's doing it. <laughs> it's not like the Buddha gained awakening and then dropped all this stuff. He needed to use it. I mean, how do you think he walked all over India for 45 years? He needed to have some way of nourishing his mind. Yeah, you've got to, ha you've got to be anchored with the breath. I mean, you don't leave the breath until the breath stops. And even then, you're just with this, what John Lee calls the still breath. Yeah. That's, that's delusion concentration. Yeah. yeah. So when you find that the breath is comfortable, you've got to do some work. And one of the ways you do the work is spreading the comfort through the body and trying to maintain a full body awareness. Not you're not necessarily in delusion concentration for that one minute, but as soon as, as soon as things start getting comfortable, you remind yourself, okay, I'm here not just to enjoy the comfort, I'm here to do some work with my mind. And you're doing work with comfort. But you have to remember, when you sit down to meditate, you're not going to say, I just want to rest, I don't want to think about anything. You're, that's, you're setting yourself up for a trouble. Okay. okay, if you're in the kind of what they call the one-pointed state, you're not going to get any insight. But this, the Buddha actually talks about the insights that come while you're in the state. It, and he basically says you, the analogy he gives is of a man who's standing looking at a man who's sitting, or a man who's sitting looking at a man lying down. In other words, you're, you kind of step back a little bit, and now you can survey what's going on. And what I wanted to get, I want to make sure we get before we finish, um, is that getting the mind into jhana, one, you gain insight into the processes of fabrication, because you need to do them in order to get the mind in the jhana to begin with. You have to, you know, you're working with your breath, you're working with your directed thought and evaluation, you're working with the feelings and perceptions. So it gives you hand-on experience. And also, you're actually working with the five aggregates as well. Form is the breath. Feeling is the feeling of pleasure. You've got your perceptions that hold you with the breath. And then you see, okay, the way you perceive the breath is going to have an impact on how you actually experience the breath. You've got the fabrication of directed thought and evaluation and you've got consciousness of these things. Now remember, when the Buddha is talking about suffering, he's saying, okay, it's clinging to these five aggregates through ignorance. And now what we're doing is we're trying to bring some knowledge to the aggregates, and the question of why did the Buddha choose aggregates to begin with? It's because they're very clear in when you're doing, doing a state of concentration. So you're beginning to see, oh, these are the things I cling to. You see them in action. So this is why getting the mind in a jhana like this is getting you primed so you can actually look at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. To understand when he says, okay, this is where the suffering is, it's clinging to these five activities. Do we, have we talked much about the aggregates this time? I've been teaching too many courses this summer, I don't know. <laughs> okay, why did the Buddha talk about five aggregates? Um, largely, I think, because these aggregates are the activities that go into feeding. You've got the form of your body, 
which you're trying to nourish. And you've also got the form of the food out there. Okay, here's, here's food. It's an object. Okay. And then there's the feeling, the feeling of hunger that you're trying to get rid of, and the feeling of pleasant feeling of satisfaction that comes from eating. You've got perceptions as to, okay, what kind of hunger do I have? Am I hungry for something salty, something sweet, something heavy, something light? You try to perceive, you try to label what kind of hunger you've got so you know what to look for. And then you have the perception, okay, where is the food out there? What, what, what things out there are edible or not? And um, this is one of the ways we begin to engage with the world when we're little kids. You know, I don't know if you remember, but you crawl across the, you've seen the kids crawl across the floor. They run across something on the floor, what do they do? <laughs> is this edible? <laughs> That's the first point of interest in it. And the Buddha says, what is it all beings have in common? What is, what is one? All beings subsist on food. That's what it means to be a being. You've got to eat. You've got, to eat. Okay, you've got your perception of the food. And then there's fabrication. The question is, how do I find the food that I need? Once I find it, what do I do with it? If I get a raw potato, I can't eat a raw potato, but I can cook it. That's fabrication. And then there's consciousness, which is aware of all these things. So we've got these five activities that are very basic to the process of feeding, which we really cling to. And, but then what's counteract and counterintuitively said, okay, this is why we suffer. Because when you're in a position where you have to feed, you're in a position of weakness. Because you know you, you have one bottle of water, that's not the last time you're going to need water for this lifetime. You know? You're going to need, need to keep finding it. And while you're eating, you've probably seen animals while they're eating. <laughs> this is why we suffer. And so what the Buddha is saying, we need to see these five activities very clearly. Jhana, which is food for the mind, when you're on the path. This is your primary example. Okay, this is what feeding is like. It is giving you the most harmless, the best form of feeding. And even then, you want to, want to say, okay, there's still some suffering here. That's when you decide, oh, I want to go to beyond something better than this. So this is one of the reasons why we're working up to this. We talk about how you need to see the process of, you know, you're clinging and you need to see the ignorance with which you cling, because that's why you're suffering. And so you need to get the mind in a state where it's emotionally stable enough to do the jhana, and with a certain sense of you know, responsibility to maintain, you know, you've got a certain amount of character so that you can adhere to the precepts. And you've got this understanding, right? This, this is the big problem. I'm suffering because of the way I feed. And so all these things are necessary so you can get the state into state of jhana, and then use that jhana so you can get rid of your ignorance, and that way, that's how you get rid of suffering. This is where it all comes together. Well, it's, it, sometimes the insights come up unexpectedly. In fact, you cannot plan an insight. It's like planning, you're, you're going out, the, the forest of Johns have this analogy, say it's like hunting. You know, you, you know where the rabbits are. But you can't say, okay, I'm going to go out at 3.05, the rabbit's going to come by, and I'll take it home. You have to go there and say, okay, whenever the rabbit comes, I'm ready for it. So you have to do some preparation. Put yourself in the right place. Be very quiet, but very alert.
And you also ask the right questions. And that's what the Four Noble Truths are all about, asking the right questions. Where is the stress here? What's causing it? What can I do to put an end to the cause? So you've got that combination. You've got the mind in stillness. You ask the right questions, but the questions are pretty simple. Where is the stress? Where is the stress? So you're not doing a lot of elaborate analysis, but there is kind of an analysis of where is the stress in the midst of all this? And then when the, you know, when the rabbit comes, okay, you've got you've got three kinds of fabrication: ver physical, verbal, and mental. The the verbal is the direct thought and evaluation. This is how you talk to yourself. And direct thought means okay, I'm going to choose to think about this topic, and now the evaluation is what I tell myself about it. The questions I ask, the comments I make, the analysis I make. That's the act, that's that's the that's the fabrication, because fabrication is many places the Buddha defines as intention. What what are your intentions? Okay, in the case of looking for food, you want to find it first, and then when you found it, your intention is I'm going to make it edible. How do I make it edible? That would be verbal fabrication. You're feeding off the pleasure of space. The pleasure of that perception of space. I have no limits. Space is really nice. Boy, isn't this nice. It doesn't hurt anybody, but it doesn't last. Yeah. <laughs> dang, dang it. <laughs> I knew this monk one time. He was telling this story about another monk who was meditating. And he was having this vision of these devas coming by and they would bow down to him because he was, he was in concentration, and say, hey, this is pretty cool, being a meditator. Even the devas bow down to you. All of a sudden, this, this foot appeared and knocked him on the head and said, space devas can bow down if they want to and not if they don't want to. <laughs> but yeah, it's, being, being in, the, in the formless realms is kind of like the harmoniums and Sirens of Titan. Did you ever read that book? That, it's, it's, it's Kurt Vonnegut's best. Um, okay. um, and he has this vision of planet Mercury as like this big crystal, honeycombed. And of course one side is to the sun all the time, and the other side is to the outer space. So you've got intense heat here and intense cold here. And so it sets up vibrations in the crystal. And then these little harmoniums, they look like little kites with suction cups on each of the, each of the corners. And they, they're kind of translucent in different colors, and they go you know, crawling around the, the crystal until they get a spot where the vibrations are really nice. And they feed off the vibrations. That's Kurnavana gets, you know, vision of a world where people didn't have to feed off each other or other animals. And the, and the harmoniums have two messages that they send out to one another telepathically. One is, here I am, here I am, here I am. Another is, so glad you are, so glad you are, so glad you are. <laughs> The Sirens of Titan. Anybody in here ever read that? Yeah. What other right concentrations did you want? What other right concentrations did you want? <laughs> you know, all, the, all the factors of the path circle around right concentration. Mm -hmm. Hunger. Okay, if fully awakened, the mind itself has no mental hunger. You, you still feed the body. 
But the mind doesn't need to feed off of pleasure anymore. That's the distinction. That's what that's what the Ajahn is saying. Right. He had this analogy that he saw of the the wood that was in the water, and then the wood that was taken out of the water, but it was still wet, and then the wood that was far away from the water and also dry. He said it's only the third one where you can actually set fire to it. And so he thought the water meant pleasure of any kind. So he said, oh, I've got to get away from all pleasures. And it was after only after six years he realized, oh, wait a minute, he read the analogy wrong. The water stood for sensual pleasure, the pleasure of sensuality. But you can get the mind into the pleasure of jhana, and that's a, that's a pleasure you don't have to be afraid of. I mean, that was the realization after he realized, after six years of torture, he said, this is going nowhere. And, then, and this is one of the areas where you really admire the Buddha because there are a lot, he, he, he said, you know, no one has ever undergone more torture than this. He could have set up his shingle there. So I am the most tortured person. <laughs> and there, and think about it, what keeps you going for six years torturing yourself? There's an element of pride. And he, the fact that he's comparing himself with others. Like, I, no one has ever done this this far. And that's where he had to let go of that pride. And that's, a, that's a hard thing to let go of. But he said, okay, look, I really want to gain awakening. I've got to let go of everything that's unskillful. That's when he reflected back. Is there some other way? Or could there be another way? And that's when he reflected on the pleasure of, he'd, when he was a kid, he'd gotten spontaneously into the first jhana. He said, okay, is there anything that I should be afraid of in that pleasure? And he said, no. It's not sensual. And the mind is clear, the mind is strong. That might be the way. So that's why right concentration was actually the first element of the path he discovered. Well, that's, that's when he got onto the path, and then following that, then he came, got to awakening. Because he, he had to figure out the rest of the path. For him, that was the fourth jhana. He's, and there are some passages where he said it could actually be any of the jhanas. Anuruddha was watching. <laughs> One of his disciples who could read minds. No, as Anuruddha said. I mean, when you're talking, you can't be in jhana. He said that if as long as you're speaking, you're not in jhana. Well, 49 days afterwards, yeah. And apparently he learned all kinds of things in those 49 days. But when he came out, he said, there's an awful lot that I did not teach. So we don't know what he was contemplating during those 49 days. And he was also talking to the five brethren who had been with him during those five years of torture. And then they abandoned him after they saw him eating food again. And so he was basically telling him, hey, look, the way is not through self-torture. And this is the middle way. He hadn't gone back to the extreme of sensual pleasures. He'd found a middle way. And it doesn't mean sort of half, half pleasure and half pain. It means basically using pleasure and using pain as tools. Because the, the pleasure of the jhana can be pretty intense. Basically, okay, use that and then, you, and then you try to understand pain, understand suffering. And that's, 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 that's the middle way. Well, you, you want to see, the things you want to see arising and passing away are the things that you're attached to. Because those are the things that matter. I mean, things that arise and pass away that you're not attached to, that's not an issue. Yeah, so in that case, the Buddha was wrong, you know, because the Buddha was saying, everybody, hey, go do jhana. 
when, the, when he tells the monks to meditate, he doesn't say, go do vipassana. He says, go do jhana. You know? Well, I mean, there are, as I said, there's the commentarial jhana where you get really one-pointed and kind of, you know, lose consciousness of your body. And there's kind of a danger there. But hey, the dangers of being attached to jhana are much less than the dangers of being attached to sensuality. Right? People don't lie, kill, steal, cheat over jhana. <laughs> Okay, some people will gain psychic powers based on the jhanas, not everybody. And it, a lot of this has to do with your past karma. And there are different theories as to exactly what kind of karma gives rise to these psychic powers. One of the more interesting theories I've heard is that some people have a lot of karmic debts they still have even though gained, they gained awakening and they're going to have to pay them back really fast. <laughs> and having psychic powers, you know, being able to read people's minds, that's a really efficient way of teaching. <laughs> or Mogalana could you know, check up on you know where are your dead ancestors right now so you can send you know dedicate merit to them that kind of thing. Distracted. Exactly. I mean, if you get if you gain these psychic powers prior to your awakening, you say mm, I'd like to just play around for a while and, and, and have some fun. But but then but then you think about it. Suppose you really could read people's minds. Do you really want to know what everybody thinks about you? <laughs> okay, there are, two, there are two kinds of suffering, okay? There's the suffering that is in the three perceptions, where you see, okay, everything that's inconstant is stressful, everything that's stressful is not self. Now that applies to everything that's fabricated. Even pleasant things are stressful in that sense. Then there's the suffering that is the clinging that comes from craving. Now, of those two kinds of suffering, it's only the second one that weighs down the mind. Because having a body, there's going to be pain. I mean, even arahants get sick, even arahants get you know, killed in car crashes. There was a famous one in Thailand. There are plane crashes where arahants were in. So there's going to be physical pain, but they don't suffer. It's because of their lack of clinging. So you have to distinguish between the two kinds of suffering. And the other is just what's, what's inherent in fabricated things. So you say, you know, when you say there is suffering inherent in life, okay, that's, that's the suffering in the three perceptions. But the suffering in the Four Noble Truths is the suffering that comes from craving, which is clinging. And that's the suffering that weighs down the mind. I mean, if you don't identify with the body, and something happens to the body, okay, there may be physical pain, but you don't suffer from it. I mean, this is the what the Buddha's skill is all about. And we're, all of us are you know, born, going to grow, get aged, ill, die. Even the Buddha had to get sick, even the Buddha died. But he didn't suffer, because he was, able, he was able to put an end to the clinging and craving. Well, there's, there was a case where Basanity comes to visit the Buddha, and the King Basanity, and that at that point he gets word that his favorite queen has died. And he breaks down and cries. And the Buddha says, you know, when was it ever, did you ever expect that something that is born would not grow ill, age, die, be subject to separation? It happens to everybody. And it's amazing that that contemplation, well, this is happening to everybody, it takes some of the sting away. And then he says, as long as you feel that something is accomplished by eulogies, you know, grief over the past, something's okay, allow yourself to, you know, to express your grief. 
But when you begin to realize that it's getting indulgent, self-indulgent, that's when you've got to stop. Because from the Buddhist analysis, the reason we grieve is because our sense of loss. We're not grieving so much for the other person, it's just like we're the ones they are holding on. You can't, you don't know beforehand which jhana you're going to be in when you gain awakening. So you're just trying to make your mind as still as possible. Some people gain awakening in the first jhana, but you don't know if that's going to be your case. No, you have to be in, you have to enter in. That's part of the path. Either, either, have either within it or when you come right out. But you have to have gone through it. Well, they say the first level of awakening, that's an, Ameri that's an English phrase. In, in, in Pali, when they're talking about bodhi or awakening, they're usually talking about the Buddha's full awakening or an arahant's full awakening. <laughs> what do I say? I don't know. <laughs> All these, oh yeah, we're practicing a lot, yeah. Well, they talk about, the, there were times when the Buddha actually would go off every now and then in the forest and say, I don't want anybody to come and see me. I'm going to be gone for three months. And I can fully understand. <laughs> but the, the commentary has a, a schedule for the Buddha. He gets up at four in the morning, he meditates to see who, who is he going to teach today. Then he goes out for alms, comes back. In the evening he meets with lay people, at late afternoon he'll meet with lay people, then in the evening he'll talk with, meet with monks, and then later in the evening he'll, devas come to see him. And then he sleeps a little bit, and then he wakes up the next morning at four and starts again. You know? Okay, well thank you for your attention. Okay, okay, okay. And hope this has been helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.